one of the most common objections I hear to, to being a Christian, and, and frankly, one of the things I hear a lot from Christians um, themselves who are trying to, to live the Christian faith is, is this objection that if God wants to be known, he wants us to follow him, why does, that, why does he make it so difficult? Why is it so hard to know God? And we've been going through the book of Acts uh, for most of this year, and we're going to be in Acts a lot of this year. And that can almost like pile on and make that question even more uh, difficult in that you read the early church and you see like lots of really powerful, miraculous things happening. And you begin to wonder, like, why doesn't God do that now? And if you hear last week, uh, last week, the, the power in the early church was so evident that people thought if they had someone who was sick, if they could get them in the way of Peter's shadow, that they'd be healed. So like if Peter's shadow fell on them, they'd be healed. Right, let's just be real. Like nothing like that happens today. Like I was trying to think, like what if, if that was to be like our church and people were to come and like there was something about, about me that was like healing. It's like would, it, would like would people come and bring people just to touch my beard and hope that they would be healed? That's the best thing I had was my beard. It's like not my shadow. It's like clearly not my, my head, um, but like my beard. Like could that be a healing force? But it, that doesn't happen, right? Nothing like that happens in the church today. And so why, why is that? Why does it seem like God is so hard to know? And believe it or not, like that was a central question the early church had to face, even though they had like really powerful, miraculous things going on. Because you have to remember the early church was birthed in the city of Jerusalem and the early church didn't think they were starting a new religion. They thought that they were the, the continuation and the, the completion of the Hebrew faith. And that Jesus was the Messiah for the Hebrew people. And that uh, he had walked among them, he had died for them, and he was their Messiah, their king. But the reality was a lot of that city who had watched Jesus their entire, his entire life, who had been to church every week, who had prayed, who had gone, you know, done the church thing, a lot of people like that had completely missed their Messiah. And so the early church had to deal with that. Well, how, how could that happen? How could God show up amongst his people and people completely miss it? How could people miss him like that? Why is it so hard to know God? And I want to think about that question through the eyes of a man named Stephen, who Andrew read for us. And, and Stephen is going to get up and preach a sermon. And if you've ever, ever read the sermon... Um, it's not particularly interesting because uh, it's, it's hard to understand what's going on. It seems like this theological debate that's really complex. But really underneath the debate that, that seems complex and really hard to understand is actually the question that, that I just raised, which is why is, so, why is God so hard to know? How could God show up and so many people who were waiting for the Messiah, hoping for the Messiah, miss the Messiah? Stephen, how could that be true? And Stephen gets up to preach, and he preaches, and he answers that question. And as he un answers that question, he lays out a number of things I want to push into this morning as, as a church. Uh, one is, why is it so hard to know God? Why is that true? How could so many people miss Jesus? Secondly, what is it that we need to know God, experience him? Like, what needs to happen outside of us? And then thirdly, like, how do we do that? What's inside of us that we need to know and experience God? So first, why is it so hard to know God. And so Stephen, he's going to get up to preach, and not like previous sermons in the book of Acts where uh, people got up to preach because people were interested in what they had to say. Stephen actually gets up to preach because people are very angry at him at this point. Because the Jewish belief in this day was that if you, if you were going to know God, you needed two things. You needed the law, the Hebrew scriptures, and you needed the temple. 
And as Andrew read, there are two accusations against Stephen, that he's spoken against the law and he's spoken against uh, the temple. It'd be like if I got up and started uh, this morning with a really like crass K-State joke in light of what happened yesterday. It's like that's the level of offense um, that, that, that Stephen has done by speaking against the law and the temple. And yet, like what's important is that whatever the accusation against Stephen was, it's not true. And Luke, as he writes this narrative, wants to be clear, this, these are false witnesses they're, misun- they're misapplying what Stephen has said. They're not being fair to him. Um, and yet, like I said, they're, it seems like this is a debate about the law and the temple, but it's not. It's, a, it's really a debate about if Jesus is the Messiah, how did he end up dead? And how did so many people miss him? That's what Stephen gets up to preach. And Stephen starts, and this is why it's, this sermon maybe isn't the most interesting if you've ever read it. He starts by like going into like a deep dive into Old Testament history. Um, and so I'm going to do that for like four minutes now. Stephen did it for much longer. I'm going to only do it for four minutes. And you have to come with me to understand the sermon. I'm going to try to make it interesting um, uh, as I can. But, but here's where Stephen goes. He starts with Abraham. And he, he reminds the, his, his hearers as he gets up to preach, remember that God revealed himself first to Abraham to make himself a people that through whom then God was going to reveal himself to the whole world through. It was through this people of Abraham. And so this is the non-controversial part of the sermon. This is where he builds... Uh, common ground with his listeners. This would be like if I was going to preach a controversial sermon and I wanted to get you on my side early on and I just found a cute cat video in the, during the week and just showed it and we watched it together and we giggled and we laughed. Look at the kittens, you know, and, and then, we, then I went into controversial stuff and that's sort of what he's done. He's gone super low-hanging fruit. We all love Abraham. No controversy. That's step one. Step two then is he goes to a man named uh, to, uh, Joseph. And here's where some tension starts. As Stephen says, God wanted to reveal himself through this man, Joseph. And Joseph had 11 brothers, and his 11 brothers were not interested in what God wanted to reveal through Joseph. And so they they actually contemplated murdering their brother. And then they threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery. And what, what Stephen says is, remember, like, Israel as a nation, you have Abraham, and then you have the 12 tribes of Israel. These are these 12 brothers. He said 11 of the brothers resisted God's revelation. 11 of 12. That's not, that, those are not good statistics. 11 of 12, when God wanted to real, reveal himself through his brother, what they did was they, they threw him in a pit, almost murdered him, and sold him into slavery. That's what they did with God's revelation. Now, God still saved like nearly the entire world from famine through this, but remember how the brothers reacted. And then secondly, uh, the next place he goes, or thirdly, is to Moses. And again, Israel, God's people, Abraham's descendants, they're in slavery to Egypt. And God wants to reveal himself uniquely through Moses. And so he does. And here's what Stephen says happened. Uh, Here's the response of the people of Israel to Moses when God tries to reveal himself through Moses. Here's what Stephen says in his sermon. Our fathers refused to obey him, to obey Moses, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us, we don't know what's become of him. And so Stephen, he's building this case, and he's making this point again and again and again. Whenever God has revealed himself to his people, the more he reveals himself, the more he is resisted. And not just by, like, people you'd expect to resist him, but, like, the people of God who needed freed from slavery, the, the 11 patriarchs, like the heroes of the faith, when God showed up and revealed himself, everyone resists. 
And so why is that? Why is it that when, when God reveals himself, human beings respond with resistance? And there's a word that sort of hints at that. When Stephen begins the sermon, he doesn't just say God revealed himself uh, to, to Abraham. He says that, that the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. And this word glory is really important. It's at both the end of Stephen's sermon, or at the beginning of his sermon and at the end of this passage. And glory is a good word to think about why we resist God when he shows up. Because there's lots of ways that you can define what glory means. The biblical word, it's a religious word. Um, but when you think glory, think, think fire. The fire is, in its right context, a really powerful, beautiful tool for us. But in its wrong context, or not received properly, it's, it's, it's dangerous. It's life-threatening. So think of cooking. Like, if you want to cook something, you can't just turn up the heat to, like, cook it faster. It doesn't work. Fire doesn't work like that. Um, so a couple, a couple weeks ago, I was trying to, to make sweet potatoes, and I didn't have as much time, so I turned up the heat a little bit on the grill, put them on aluminum foil, just thought, you know, I'll just flip them more, it'll work, and, uh, and got done, and, and opened them up, and it was just, like, burnt. I mean, it was just black. It was terrible, and they tasted, they tasted like burnt cigarettes. They were, actually, they tasted like burnt cigarettes that had been burned on a grill is what they tasted like. It was terrible. You cannot just turn the heat up more to get a better, faster product, and... And God, God is not just a person. He's God of glory. And, and throughout the scriptures, as he reveals himself, just because he gives more of himself doesn't mean that we cook better, right? That our faith it gets stronger. Rather, often what happens is the more God reveals himself, the more people resist him. That when God reveals himself in the Hebrew Bible, what happens is not that people change their minds in mass. It's that often what was already in their heart just gets amplified. If they resisted God before, now they resist him even stronger. If they had faith before, now they have even stronger faith. Or think of it like this. What is, what is your least favorite commandment in all the Bible? I know you got one, but what is it? Like, think, just think. Just tuck it away. What's, what's the least, like, the thing you just don't want to do? Um, and it's okay. Like, you can admit that. Like, what's your least favorite commandment in the Bible? Is it, is it that you can never lie? Is it that you have to honor your father and mother in every circumstance? Is it the command to give away at least 10% of, of your income? The command to love your neighbor as yourself. The command not to cut. I mean, there's a lot, you got lots to choose from. What's your least favorite? Now imagine uh, if God shows up to you in the flesh this week. All right, Jesus, however you want that to be, whatever it is, he does. And he shows up and he says, look, listen, you've been trouble, you're having trouble with this command. And I'm just going to stay with you, like, nonstop, 24-7, until you start obeying this command perfectly. And I'm just going to walk with you, and when you, start to, when you want to break it, I'm going to be right next to you. Um, I guess, like, for a day, that'd be great, right? It's good, good accountability. God, we got this. Let's do this. You know, and that, that's, it's working well. But day two, it's, like, a little annoying. Day three, you want to break the commandment, and you need to get away. Day four, you're going through withdrawal. You're getting angrier. And, like, are you, do you really want God to follow you around? And make sure you keep his commandments. Do you really want that? I mean, how do you treat people that are just human beings who try to keep you accountable, who try to hold you accountable to keeping your word or your commands? Here's the deal. Unless you think you are superior to the 12 patriarchs of Israel or to the people who witnessed the, the freeing of slavery, the exodus from Egypt, unless you think you're superior to them spiritually, 
you are going to resist God. And the more he reveals yourself, the more he reveals himself to you, the more you're at danger of resisting him even stronger. That's Stephen's point. And that's why God just can't show up tomorrow while you're praying and say, listen, I know you're having trouble with faith, but I'm here this morning to make it all better. I, I exist, right? It, it, it won't work the way you think it will. Our hearts aren't, we're, he's fire, right? This is, this is both potential faith, but also danger. And it's where Stephen starts his sermon. You want to know why people miss Jesus? Because they weren't looking for him. They weren't looking for the Messiah. They weren't actually worshiping God. They didn't want him. So that's, that's point one. Uh, why is it hard to know God? Well, it's we resist him. And the more he reveals himself to us, the more we resist him. So that's one. Second, then, okay, what do we need outside of ourselves to know and experience um, God? And as I mentioned, one of the reasons why the crowd is angry at Stephen is because uh, Stephen has spoken against the temple, or, or they think he's spoken against the temple. And most likely what Stephen has said is the same thing that Jesus said about the temple, which Jesus at the temple actually said at one point, he said, uh, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And what Jesus was saying was not actually about the temple, um, it was actually about him. He's like, kill my body, kill me, take me out, and in three days I'll come back to life. And so the reason, why would he refer to himself as a temple? It's sort of a weird, a weird analogy to make as well as something that was clearly misunderstood and led to his, his arrest and death. Why does Jesus say, I'm the temple, destroy me, raise me up in three days? Well, what the temple was in the Hebrew Bible, is the, the whole point of it was to be the meeting place of people and God. To be the place where you're known by God. To be the place where you're forgiven by God. It's where you entered into the presence of God in your brokenness. And you brought a sacrifice. And you knew if you came and offered that sacrifice, he would cleanse your sins. He would meet with you. You knew if you went to the temple in the right way, God would be there to meet with you. And what Jesus was saying when he said, listen, destroy my body, raise it up in three days. What he's saying is that all those good and beautiful and wonderful intentions of the temple, to be the place of forgiveness of sin, to be the place where people met with God, to be the, the place where people were made whole and made right. Jesus is saying, now, that is me. That is, my, that is who I am now. And you don't have to have a building to do that anymore. You could just do that coming to me through faith. And it's why Stephen, at the end of his sermon, he quotes Isaiah 66. Because even though the, the, the temple was incredibly important, um, even as the temple was being built, the, the Hebrew people understood, listen, God doesn't just live in a building. Like, he made creation, right? You don't build a house for God, and then he goes, it's like, well, okay, i got a place to sleep now. No, he made the whole world. And so Isaiah 66 says this, and this was quoted as the temple, uh, or this idea was quoted as, as um, Solomon prayed for the temple's consecration. Uh, Stephen quotes with this, or ends his sermon with this quote from Isaiah 66. Um, God speaking, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What's my place of rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And so now what Jesus is saying is that through, the, through his death and life and resurrection, you can experience the blessings of the temple, the forgiveness of sins, the presence of God, um, being made right, being made whole. You can experience that now only through Jesus. What you and I need to know God is Jesus. Nothing else. And that's a part of the tension that is, is really there. Stephen is saying, you don't, you don't need the temple anymore. You need Jesus. 
And even though we don't have a temple here in the United States, we have our own things we worship, Stephen would say to us, whatever it is you think is going to get you the good life into the presence of God, no, you need, you need Jesus. He's the meeting place of God. And so we've seen, we've seen the problem. Like, we're, we are, the more God reveals himself to us, the more resistant to him we will be. The solution is that we need Jesus. We need a meeting place between us and God that can overcome that resistance and God can meet us. That's Jesus. So thirdly, okay, well, what do we do? What does it look like for us to try to encounter God? And there's, a few, there's three things I want to say about this. But the first is not in the text. And the reason why I want to go there is because Stephen's people had a massive problem, which we'll, we'll get to in a second. But we, we have another problem um, that makes experiencing God so much more difficult than even they would have had. We have another layer of difficulty we have to overcome. And that is that unlike the people that uh, Stephen is preaching to, um, we believe that we li- live in a, a closed universe. And to be clear, even if you're a Christian and you believe in the supernatural and you believe that God exists, you, you still operate and inhabit the world more like the universe is closed and the supernatural does not exist than the supernatural does exist. This is just the water we swim in. And to illustrate this, uh, I was watching a, a Netflix uh, comedy special, um, uh, Ricky Gervais. He's a British comedian. And he began his special by saying, like, my job is just like, it's just like Jesus. I just go and talk to people. And then he made a joke, uh, uh, sort of digging at any kind of idea of supernatural, which is that, but unlike, he says, unlike Jesus, I, I showed up today. Um, sort of mocking the idea, like Jesus, he's not here in the flesh. If he wants you to believe, you know, if you want to believe in him, he should show up in the flesh. And, and, and he doesn't. And, and sort of mocking almost this idea, like, do you believe in uh, that Jesus is really there, that he, you can really speak to him or know him? And, and the reality is, it's not just, you and I face moments like that where ideas like that, they're just mocked, they're sort of put down. It's the water we swim in. And there's this undertone of mocking the supernatural, mocking um, the idea that our universe is open. And listen, I'm a pastor, and if someone comes to me and says, hey, God spoke to me this week, my first reaction is, I don't know about that. And some of that, like, some of that's just healthy, because there are lots of things, lots of times God has not spoken, and someone has, like, missed, someone else was speaking, and they just missed it. So I get that, but, like, even as a pastor, I'm like, I don't, did God really speak to you? Like, is God really, like, did that really happen? Like, there's just, we have this inherent skepticism in us. And that, that inherent skepticism makes it very difficult for us to know Jesus, to experience God. If we're deeply skeptical of anything supernatural, then we, prob- we could experience the presence of God and completely miss it because we interpret it as something natural, normal, material. I think of it like this. I, I live in a house where at times in the middle of the night, I'll hear a sound that almost certainly sounds like someone is in my house. Right, and it's, there's no one in my house, most likely. Um, but the reality is, I am so tired. I have predetermined that there's no one in my house, and I'm not going to even get up and look. It's like it was, it was something that you know, it was a weird roof thing, or it was like it's raining, or it's like I just explain it from within the co- from just ruling out there's no one in my house because one that would be terrifying, and two, I'm lazy. Right, that's why. And the reality is, a lot of us inhabit the universe like that. Something happens. And because God is never, like, front and center in terms of explaining why the world is the way it is for us, we immediately exclude him as a possibility. And we read something else. We assume something else. And listen, if you're going to know, like, know and experience God, you're going to have to live in the reality with which you think 
There's a possibility of the supernatural. Whether you're a Christian or whether you're not. You have to live even with the possibility of the supernatural. And so the first thing, how, how you're going to even know God is, is, is to open the door. And what I mean by that is, is if you think you live in a closed room, there's nothing outside of it, well, then you'll, you'll, never, you'll never possibly explain what's, what's happening to you or what's, what your life is without even thinking, could there be another explanation? Could there be a possible explanation that's supernatural? And if that seems like too big of a jump, what's, what I find ironic about our culture is on the one hand, like the ideas of the supernatural or I heard Jesus speaking to me or God speaks or God exists, that's really mocked. And yet, like every good piece of art or movie, like points to the possibility that there is a God. So a uh, recent movie that came out, Oscar nominated, uh, Lady Bird. It's a book of, of a girl kind of finding her, her identity formation. She's at the end of high school thinking about college and, and just struggles with identity and who she is and all that. And the, I mean, the movie... Assuming written by someone who doesn't believe in God, not a Christian, not an atheist, or an atheist, no, agnostic, whatever. But the movie, the movie ends, no religious affiliation, um, but the movie ends with her finding peace by walking into a church and hearing a choir singing. And so our culture, like, it has these two contradictory messages. Like, mocks the idea of a supernatural, and then it, it ends a movie. It's a powerful ending where it's like, surely there's, this is more than just a church with people singing in it. There's something else here, isn't there? And if you, listen, if you, whether you're a, you've been a Christian your whole life, you don't believe, if you're an experience and know God, you have to be at least open to the possibility that maybe the most important explanation for why your week is going to be the way it is this week is God. That's, that's one. So that's, again, Stephen doesn't deal with that because everyone in his, everyone who's listening to him assumes there's a God, the universe is open. So that's one. The second thing, then, that you're going to have to do, is if, if you want to know and experience um, God, is, is hear the end of Stephen's sermon. It's pretty, it's, it's rough, it's strong. Um, here's how Stephen ends his sermon. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Again, this, this completely cuts against our cultural assumptions, which is that if there is a God, then the God's within, and the God would uh, surely like affirm us and love us and hold us close, and so you should listen to your heart, listen to your feelings. And Stephen ends by saying, you always resist God. And if you want to know him, you have to stop resisting God. So one, if you, if you want to know God, you have to open the door. But secondly, you need to meditate on your resistance. One of the reasons why it's, it's so hard to know God is we resist him. That's where I spent all of point one. But I want to, I want to go back here. Meditate on that. What, where are you resisting him? Because listen, if, if we have a commandment we don't want to keep, right? it's not just that you're breaking a rule. It's that you're, you're shoving away a person. You're, you're doling the, the, their voice to speak into your life. Or think of it like this. Like I... I have three kids all under the age of, of six, and there will be, be moments when we're at home and I'm doing something, and all of a sudden my wife's voice will cut through, and I'll hear her say, your son is talking to you. And I'll look down, and my son is like literally having a conversation with me, and I've had no idea. Um, and the reason is, is I, as a father, have learned the skill of, I like, can just, my brain is able to actually block out the frequencies of my three children's voices so I don't hear them. Right? Thankfully, my wife's voice still gets through at this point, which is very important. Um, but my kids, like, it doesn't get through. And, 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 and some of that's just survival technique, right? Like when there are three people talking at once at all times, it's like you need to be able to kind of shut the noise out a little bit. But like we have done that to God and that God 
when he speaks, oftentimes we don't hear because we have we've resist we have resistance and we've we don't hear that voice. We've carved it out. We don't listen. And it could be speaking, and we, we, we're not hearing it. We've shut it out so many times. So what, where are you resistant? Meditate on your resistance. Every human being, me included, has developed the skill of resisting God, shutting his voice out, not listening. Where's your resistance? So that's second. Uh, if you're going to know God, you need to open the door, meditate on your resistance. And thirdly, you... You need to approach God with radical and courageous faith. And when Stephen finishes his sermon, the crowd is very angry at him. And, and in this moment, Stephen says something. And it's interesting that he says what he sees. Because what he sees is only going to make them even more angry. He's finished a sermon where he said, Jesus the Messiah, you killed him, you crucified him, you missed it completely. They're all angry at him. And Stephen looks up and he, he says, uh, he sees the... Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, um, which would only make the crowd around him angry. Because he's basically saying, listen, the guy you killed, he's running history up in heaven. And I see it right now. Which is so fascinating. One, he said that out loud. And surely he knew what would happen if he said that out loud. I mean, he could have easily just said, oh, God, thank you for this private moment of revelation, this encouragement. But he doesn't. He, he says, hey, everyone, what I'm saying to you is true. And I see it right now. And the crowd responds, they pick up stones, they take him out of the city, and, and they stone him to death. I love the way Luke ends the text. He says, and Stephen fell asleep. Which just shows you the, how thick the theology of res- resurrection runs through all of the, the New Testament. Stephen's not dead, he's asleep, because he, he will wake again. And so Stephen is the first Christian who dies because he's a Christian. And it's interesting, he's not a famous apostle. He's not one of the 12 disciples who was with Jesus from the beginning. It's, it's actually a guy who, who, was, uh, who did ministry to the poor in the church. He didn't have an official title, he wasn't a pastor on staff. And yet Luke gives him the longest sermon recorded in Acts. Longer than any of Peter's sermons, than Paul's. The longest sermon goes to Stephen. And he gets two chapters of the book of Acts. Two and a half, really. And this is a turning point in the history of the church. And from this point forward, the church will go from being primarily in Jerusalem to all over the world. And so Luke wants us to slow down and look at this man, Stephen, who died for his faith. And I think if, if Luke could summarize what Stephen's faith was to us and what we need to hear about his faith, is that his faith was radical. As a pastor, one frequent conversation I have with, with other adults often is like there's a kid who's troubled or like acting up in school or in class or with parents or whatever. And the thought, like something along the lines of like, we need to get that kid in church is, is what's spoken. And I, I've always hated that because what it assumes is like the church is where we go make like kids that are rough. We make them nice and safe and clean and, and we, we, you know, we keep them out of trouble. Like kids, you have my permission. Go get in trouble with your life as long as it's for Jesus. To be clear, like the church, church is not where we get made safe and clean and nice. Stephen is anything but that here. He's a rabble rouser. He's an instigator. All for Jesus, all with faith. But this idea that the church makes everyone safe for the whole family, I, just, I, want, to, I, want, to, I want that to die and go away. 
And Will Willimon, who is a theologian, he says this about Stephen's death, and I love this. Listen to this. He says, the story of Stephen reminds us practitioners of polite, civil, mentally balanced religion. That once there were Christians who quite joyfully parted with possessions, family, friends, even life itself, in order to remain faithful. Luke sees Stephen as a hero of the faith, a quite rational person who died for the same faith by which he lived. So many Christians in Jesus died at the hands of the empire because it was impossible to reconcile the Christian claim, that is, that God, not the nations, ruled the world, with those of a progressive world empire. Maybe this is just my pet peeve lately. I need counseling or something. I don't know. But uh, too much Christianity in our culture is polite, too polite, civil, and safe. And Stephen is a reminder that should you choose to follow Jesus, you have signed on to a radical way of living that might cost you your life. Because, as Willimon says, you, by, by joining with Jesus have made a declaration that he and no one else rules the universe. And he and no one else gets the final say in your life. And he and no one else makes determinations for where you are going and what you are going to spend your life doing. Stephen is a reminder, should you choose to follow Jesus, things may get dangerous for you. And I realize some of you are sitting back, wait a minute, Tim, like this radical faith, that's concerning, like Christians have gotten weird, and I, listen, I get that. And, but here's, here's the thing, we all have faith in something, we all have the center of, of our lives built on something. The question is never do we, but it's what is it? What's there at the center? Someone who will make you hostile or violent or angry. And that, that's why Stephen, his death, is, we, we cannot miss what a radical faith in Jesus makes us into. Because one thing that's clear Luke is doing when he tells the story of Stephen's death, is he's directly linking the death of Stephen with the death of Jesus. In fact, when Luke tells the crucifixion story, he actually doesn't go into that much detail. And a lot of people think the reason why Stephen or Luke does not tell details of Jesus' crucifixion with the details that Matthew and Mark do is because Luke is going to save that story for Stephen. So the Christians who had read Matthew and Mark would see in Stephen Jesus' own death. And you see, I mean, intentionally, Stephen suffers the same fate as Jesus. That Jesus is charged by false witnesses. So is Stephen. Stephen is is taken out of the city in order to be killed. So was Jesus. That Jesus, as he died, he cried out, Lord, receive my spirit. So does Stephen. And this is the most important one. As Jesus died... He cried out, Lord, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And so did Stephen. The radical Christian faith does not make us hostile or violent or angry. It makes us a lover of enemies. The courage to say, I know what I'm about to say is going to get me killed, but I see Jesus at the right hand of God, the gospel. (laughs) And it's for you. He's running history. And I think one of the reasons why it's often hard for me and maybe for you, to know God, is we want to meet him in a pristine and safe and, and civil and, and simple faith. And Luke's like, listen, Jesus got people killed. And you're going to have to decide if you want to join a guy who gets people killed. 
But it's more than that. It's not just the radical nature of it, but it's also the sense that, and I've had this increasingly made, made clear and clear to me, and I see this in Stephen's life. If I'm going to know God, if I'm going to meet God and experience God, I'm not going to do it because I'm worthy and I can stand up tall and I've, I've proven myself and I've, I've presented to God a really great image and he has to accept me because I've won. I, no, you can't meet God like that. It's not going to work. And what I love about Stephen and his death, it is so clear that the cross had been the place where Stephen had met Jesus, that he lived out the cross of Jesus in all of his life, and especially through his death. He lived out a cross-shaped life. And if you want to know God, if you want to experience God, it's not going to be how most, you know, frankly, in our culture, Americans tell you to experience God. It's not going to be because you get, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you get it together, you stand up strong and tall, uh, tall and worthy and strong, and you're... You just have it to get. That is not, you are not going to meet God like that. You have to meet him in a cross. And a cross is where you get vulnerable, right? I mean, Jesus was, he was stripped almost naked and, and killed in front of, in public, right? It's a place of vulnerability. It's a place of weakness. It's a place of dependence. It's a place of shame. You will not meet with God unless you're willing to go there. You have to go there. You have to go to the cross. You have to go where you are spiritually vulnerable and weak and dependence. And don't, you're not cut out for it. That's the only way you're going to meet God. And listen, I, I believe everything I said in this sermon. I believe we all resist God when, when he gets near. I believe we need Jesus as the temple. But the most important thing I want you to hear is you, if you're trying to meet God through your strength, you will not meet him. But if you want to meet him at the cross in weakness and vulnerability and shame and guilt, if you want to get lower and humble yourself, he will meet you there. And at, at that place, at the cross, he will remake you, remake us, into the people like faith of Stephen. You can know God. It's, you, can, you can know him, but you have to.